0: Hello, I'm Michelle Cahill, and welcome to the XQ Expert series. Today, we're talking about design-driven school budgeting. The bottom line is this, schools can't realize their goals if they don't use money wisely and well. Our guests today are Jean-Claude Brizard, a partner and vice president at the consulting firm Cross & Joftus, where he specializes in improving the performance of public school systems. J.C.'s previous experience includes as Chief Executive Officer of Chicago Public Schools, Superintendent of Schools in Rochester, New York, a physics teacher, principal, and district leader in New York City. Karen Hawley-Miles, President and Executive Director of Education Resource Strategies. With ERS, Karen has worked with school systems around the country to analyze and improve their funding systems and design or redesign the way they use key resources— money, talent, time, and technology to improve instruction. And Alex Hernandez, a partner at the Charter School Growth Fund. Alex leads the fund's IMPACT team, which focuses on identifying high-performing schools and helping them grow to serve more students. He has wide experience in education, including as an area superintendent with Aspire Public Schools in California and as a high school math teacher. Welcome. I'd like to get us started... By asking a question about how creative can anyone be in this technical area of finance and funding, Alex, would you kick us off?
1: The key to using resources creatively in school design is to start with a vision of what you want for kids. So instead of grabbing a spreadsheet, grab a pencil and a napkin and figure out what are the signature experiences you want your kids to have. I've seen a lot of school designers they can't resist the urge to start with a school schedule, and that's where everything starts going sideways. Because once you start with a seven-period day and you haven't thought about the student experience at all, you've basically locked down 80% of your budget because you need to assign an adult to each class, and very little left over to be creative with. So when we work with school designers, we think, start with design, start with the vision, don't start with the numbers.
2: Jean-Claude? Jean-Claude? I would say two things. Think about equity and think about how you can maximize resources to support students. So first think about the fact that equity does not mean equal, meaning that not everyone gets the exact same amount of money in this particular model. We talk about funding kids differently because each one requires a different amount of money for the work to actually happen. The second thing I talked about was maximizing resources. And what I love about school-based budgeting and weighted student funding is that it gives those who are closest to kids the leverage to do what they have to do with the money to maximize student achievement in Chicago, uh, we had a massive shortfall, and we pushed to give principals and their teams control of the money to do what they had to do to push to an achievement. We found that system worked much better than having 10, 20 people downtown making those kinds of decisions.
3: Karen? The first thing that I always say to folks is just don't get bogged down by the technical. Like Alex said, it's starting with the vision of what you want to do. I think the first step, whether you're starting a brand new school or you're starting with an existing school, is to understand all the funds that you have. So adding up the general funds, the state funds, and the federal funds. But the second thing to know is that Something like 80 to 90% of your budget, whether you're starting a new school or you're starting from an existing school and modifying it, is likely to be the people on your staff. So it's going to be about how you think creatively, about who does what and when they do it, and how much you pay them for that. But in the end, the budget's just the reflection of all the choices that you make. And school founders are often really reluctant to challenge traditional ways of defining roles, time, and student grouping, even though that's the whole goal here. And so, you know, what I really push folks to think about is, let's start from what you want to have happen and then make the dollars work.
0: This is a really important conversation And just to help people who may have less experience than others with financing who are listening, could we back up for a minute and talk a little bit about how a school budget actually gets built? Karen, where does the money come from?
3: Yeah, so first of all, it's really important since we're talking with people all over the country to say that the total budget dollars you're going to have to work with varies by about three times across and within states. So you could be at a level from as low as $8,000 per pupil in states like Texas and California, or you could be as high as 24000 in states like New Jersey or Massachusetts. But with that, this is average. About 45% comes from the state. And about 45% comes from local property tax and another 10% from federal. And then, of course, in urban districts, the federal funding is significantly higher because it comes attached with both special ed students and students who are economically disadvantaged. So that'll be around 16 to 20% depending on how much uh, your particular location relies on local property tax. An important thing to think about when you're building your budget is that extra dollars come from the states and the federal departments for special education students, English language learners, economically disadvantaged students, and some states like Texas and Ohio fund gifted students extra as well. The difference in what you can get per student can affect hugely the kinds of designs that you're able to create. So for example, there's the Mary Lyons School in Boston that realized they got significantly more for intensively needy special ed students. And so they created a school actually that planned on having those extra dollars, but created a very inclusive model that included general education students as well. And by leveraging the combination of those funds, they could create the most amazing school that has the highest reading scores in the state of Massachusetts because they could combine those funds to respond to differences of every student.
0: Alex, can you talk about money available to charter schools?
1: Sure. As you know, Michelle, charter schools are public schools, and they get public funding for every child they enroll. And Karen did a great job laying out that these range wildly from 6,000 in Idaho to 20 plus thousand in New Jersey. There's big pots of money available. Does your state have a federal charter school startup grant, which can be anywhere between $500,000 to $600,000? It's a lot of money for a brand new school. Second thing is, is there money for facilities? Districts have the great advantage that they go out and they have bonds that the taxpayers vote for that they use the money to build all their schools. Charter schools don't do that. They pay for facilities out of their operating budget in most instances. So does your state have a way to help you with that expense? So for example, Cal California has SB 740, uh, which provides reimbursement if you're renting private facilities. And some districts, like Denver Public Schools, partner with charters and offer them district facilities at really reduced rates. Just figuring out, where do your dollars come from? What's the timing? Are they getting in time for you to pay your bills? I mean, these are all really important things for charter school founders to figure out. John-Claude,
0: what about district schools? What's the situation across the country?
2: I think you'll find a number of different approaches across the country. In some places, you'll find that the central office sort of really locks down on exactly how they want money spent. They'll tell you how many teachers you're going to get, how many assistant principals you're going to get, and where the money's going to go, et cetera. But what to remember is the fact that while there are rules and formulas and regulations, especially attached to title funding from the feds, a lot of other things can be negotiated with the district. Even if they have a rule about telling you you're going to get 53.8 teachers, you can't hire point eight teachers. But if you have a model you're pushing, you can negotiate some of those flexibilities with the district. The fact is I have found in my own personal experience that a lot of things can be negotiated if you have an idea, if you have a model and if you have someone who's willing to listen to you downtown.
1: I'd like to piggyback on JC's point around flexibility. For people who are working on new school models, it's important to figure out if your school model is quote unquote compliant, for lack of a better word, with the requirements of the funding you're receiving. So for example, you might have a school model that's based on students going out for internships or going to college campuses and taking classes, and the state you live in may not recognize that as instructional time. And so instead of just hearing no and saying, oh, we can't do internships, Send our kids to college campuses, you really need to work with your state or work with your local operator to figure out what flexibilities are there. When I worked in California, we used the independent study law to help kids get credit when they went out and got internships or for college courses. So that's a short-term fix. There's always a short-term fix. And then you have to work on the long-term fix. And sometimes that means negotiating a new agreement with your local authorizer. And sometimes it takes pushing a policy change up at the state level or getting some type of waiver. There's almost always a workaround to do what you want to do, but it takes a lot of persistence and a lot of vision and gumption.
3: When I think about resource flexibility, I think about five different dimensions. The first one is, can you define the staff positions and roles in your school? and even charters sometimes are required to have, you know, certain specific positions in there, like a nurse or a guidance counselor or this kind of thing. The second one would be, can you choose the people in those roles, which is not something that is always easy in a district school. The third one would be, do you have the ability to say, I don't want this particular role in my school, and can you convert it to dollars? The fourth one would be, Can you use student and teacher time flexibly in the largest sense, in the way that Alex was talking about it? Can I expand the time beyond the school day, and what do I have to do to make that credit earning to count? And then the last one would be, can you set compensation? Even charter schools sometimes don't have that flexibility because they might be an in-district charter that has to abide by the union contract, for example there are lots of flexibilities when you're thinking about who does what when, thinking about the different roles and different compensation levels and the way that you can pay those who are contributing the most and who have the expertise that's harder to get more while finding other ways to do some of the
0: other jobs. For school designers, the budget can be used strategically to make their educational priorities real in day-to-day operations. How do schools actually do that?
1: So designing a school can be completely overwhelming. So what I advise school founders is to shrink the problem. Think about a pot of kids for some period of time. Let's say 60 students for 90 minutes. And your number one priority is to have an hour-long Socratic seminar in small groups of 15 twice a week. So once you've decided that, you can figure out what types of adults do you need to support this pod of children, so you have these great Socratic seminars going on twice a week, and what are students doing outside of these seminars. Once you've figured this out, the pods are these core building blocks of your school, so you can use them and their budget implications to just stack these pods up and create a school of any size. The other way I think about this is to make investments no one else is making. So for example, Valor Collegiate in Nashville runs two 6 through 12 schools. And they have this world-class social-emotional learning program. It's amazing. The academic program is structured in a traditional way, but their social-emotional learning program creates a very different type of school. So here's an example of you you run a relatively traditional thing, but the program you're laying over the top of it creates a completely different experience for students. And they were one of the best schools in Tennessee last year.
2: Those are fantastic points, Alex, and fantastic examples. Let me just add a few to that. I was at a school a number of years ago in Miami-Dade called Design and Architecture Senior High School. And I watched them take dollars from staffing positions and brought in these visiting artists who were able to work with kids on arts and music during these collaborative hours. I'll give you another example. The Leadership Academy for Young Men in Rochester, New York, this is a school that was really built around the needs of young men of color. Staffing positions that were nearly 90% of their budget, but they're able to take some of those positions, dollarize them, and bring in the kinds of social-emotional support, mentoring support that many of these young men needed. So there are ways of doing this work to really leverage the existing dollars. So the more you can take the existing sort of buckets of money and dollarize to bring the kinds of innovations you're looking for in your schools, the more likely you're going to create the kinds of environment that really you're looking for.
0: Karen, I'm sure you've experienced where schools have to make some difficult decisions with their finances and their priorities. The priorities give you the place from which to make these trade-offs. When I think about the trade-offs,
3: the big ones are, what's your student-teacher ratio? versus what your teacher salary level is. And so the lower you want that student-teacher ratio to go, the less you have available for teacher salary and other things. But that's a fundamental trade off. So thinking about ways to reduce the number of teachers that you need, let's say by using technology, let's say by using student teachers, let's say by using other kinds of staff in really creative ways so you can focus the teacher spend there, A second big trade-off is that teacher-student ratio versus how much time you have teachers teaching. The more time that you give teachers for collaboration, the higher up the number of teachers you need if you want to keep class size down. Our study of what high-performing schools do suggests that you want to create quite a bit of time for teachers to work alone and collaboratively in their total time. And so to think about that as part of the trade-off that you're making. You know, the typical way schools are organized is that the class size is the same across subjects, across grades, no matter the lesson, subject, or student need, and that there isn't a lot of creative grouping and regrouping. And so a lot can happen with a pretty high teacher-staff ratio if the group sizes are varied very intentionally throughout the day. And the same thing goes with time allocations. It's a source of trade-offs. If you spend more time on ELA and math, you'll spend less time on other things. Karen, how have you worked with schools to actually be able to get this done? So we've actually created a tool that we call School Budget Hold'em. It's literally a deck of cards, and we now have it available online. It helps you get really clear about your resource priorities. Let's say you've decided that you want to have small group sizes for reading in grades K through 3. You want to invest more in teacher salaries because you want great teachers who stay. You want two hours for teacher teams to meet per week. Then you got to ask the question because you're investing more in those things than the typical school what's going to give? And so maybe that is group sizes for grades 4 and 5, or maybe you find creative ways to group students for other subjects besides uh, reading in K-3, and you meet in larger groups maybe for those subjects. So the budget game has these kinds of options in cards, and you make choices about what you're going to invest in and then the trade-offs that you're going to make. When you make clear what your vision is and why you're making these big investments in certain areas, then the very difficult choices and challenges that you're disinvesting in or cutting become a lot easier in the context of that vision.
2: Just building on what Karen was talking about, what I also find to be really useful with Hold'em, it allows for this kind of collaborative decision-making where the school community comes together and push priorities. But... In thinking about trade-offs and priorities, in many high schools I've been in, I watch school administrators raise the class size a bit in the 12th grade to allow for smaller ninth grade academies, where we know so many of our kids disengage from high school at the ninth and 10th grade level. So putting resources there,
1: I think, is really, really important. Alex? I think a lot about the trade-offs teachers make to individualize instruction for kids. So I'm a high school math teacher. I can lecture at my class of 25 students for 60 minutes. Everyone gets my time, and occasionally I'll deliver a home-run lecture, but it's not that intimate, and there's going to be a lot of bad lectures. On the other hand, I can meet one-on-one with every kid in my class for exactly 2.4 minutes, which also has drawbacks. And I'm putting these kind of opposite examples out there to really outline the trade-offs or are for teachers who are trying to individualize instructions for their kids. So there's three levers we can pull here. One is we can have fewer students. We can push more adults in the classroom. But one thing we haven't talked about, which I think is really uh, a curiosity in the new school design world, is what's the role of students working more independently? So from a education standpoint, we want our high school students to be more independent because we think having that agency, having those skills when you get to college will help make them successful. But it also does something really important for teacher time, So my kids went to a Montessori preschool, and every day they had this three-hour independent work cycle where kids are working on activities and, and doing their own thing. How teachers spent their time in that classroom versus a traditional classroom was completely different. So much time coaching individual students, small groups of students, and you see the same phenomena happening at schools like the Acton Academy, a private school in Austin, Texas, and at Summit Public Schools in California, each of which has these really meaningful independent learning blocks.
3: And one other advantage, Alex, of having that kind of change in the way that teachers work with students is that it changes kind of the pressure on teachers. It changes the rhythm of the school day. And in many cases that we've seen, it actually makes it possible to lengthen the total teacher workday because it's not quite so um, nonstop pressured. And if you can lengthen the teacher workday without having to do a totally commensurate increase in teacher salary, a whole lot of things become possible. And suddenly collaborative planning time takes on more feasibility. Suddenly the opportunities to engage teachers in teacher leadership roles becomes more possible. And that's certainly something charters have done and are out ahead of district schools on. But the only way that makes sense is, if you can change the job of teaching to make it more durable over a full day. And having students work independently is also part of that.
0: The kind of flexibility you've all talked about comes with responsibilities to be transparent and accountable about your budget decisions. Jean-Claude, who do you need to get on board when you're making key budget decisions?
2: It's important to start with a public set of priorities for the school, transparency, justification, and, of course, the alignment comes with that. If people know what your school is about and they see the way monies are being allocated, the questions are few. If you do everything by fiat, you go behind, you close the doors with two people, and you make decisions— you're going to run into a lot of headwinds. So it's important to engage the school community and the parent community.
1: I'm so glad JC brought up the importance of parents and transparency when it comes to engaging. A lot of times when we think about transparency, we think about regulators and school boards and school report cards. But... Parents just want to know what what are you prioritizing for my child? How are we uh, spending money at the school to make those priorities a reality? And they're capable and they want to engage in those conversations. And one of the big opportunities I see for new school design is to really engage families in a fundamentally new way because they can be huge, huge champions for you and your school.
0: Karen, what should principals or school teams be prepared to give to their district or to another authority in exchange for autonomy? in order to create ultimately the schools that you want, you're going to
3: have to be able to choose your team members, starting with the leadership. Eventually, you're going to have to be able to trade out positions for dollars or other types of positions. You're going to need flexibility over the day. And so in exchange, first, you need to stay within your budget, and you need to have a plan that enables you to do that. And I would say I've found a lot of school leaders who don't feel confident about being able to do that. You've got to find someone who can help you with that and not feel incompetent because of it, because the the skills that a principal brings is often the instruction and the vision, but you you need that complementary piece. So find the help if you need it to stay within budget and to create something that really is
0: prioritizing uh, and accomplishing your vision. As you know, hundreds of XQ teams around the country have put forward school designs, We've heard that many of them plan to keep going with their ideas, even if they're not selected by XQ as winners. Some of them are redesigning existing schools. Others are starting new schools. What quick advice do you have for these teams as they craft their preliminary
2: budgets? Jean-Claude. I should be able to look at your budget and easily get a sense of your priorities, your goals, and what you're all about. I'll tell a quick story. When I was in, in, in a state, I won't mention the state, I asked someone at uh, the state office why it is that the special ed rules were 12 teachers to one student to one para or eight to one to two. Where did those numbers come from? And he looked at me and said, well, we just made them up. Um, so what that says to me very plainly is that rules can be pushed. Um, if you are creating a next-gen school, ask those questions, push those priorities, ask people the hard questions to bring the kinds of equity um, that we're looking for, the kinds of achievement uh, that we're looking for all of our children.
0: Karen?
3: I would just summarize by reiterating what Alex said in the beginning is begin with the whole pie. Including your Title I allocations if you're serving high concentrations of poverty and extra funding for special ed. In fact, you may want to create an inclusive model that takes advantages of these extra funding and actually recruits students who have these extra deeds because it's part of your mission. And then, especially if you're an existing school, you want to try as much as possible to think about your resource priorities. So more time for reading, more individual time for students and teachers to be together around understanding history, let's say. Great teachers who stay and have time during the day to work and learn together. Lay those priorities out and then remember that you can do anything, but you just can't do everything. So pick the big things and go for them. And last, get help to make all of the dollars green. And by that, I mean don't get hung up on the different funding sources and streams. Describe what it is that you want to do for the students that you have, and then find someone who can help you make the funding streams work.
1: Alex? So design your dream school first, then let your budget be in service to that vision. Don't let the tail wag the dog here. Don't let people preach the gospel of no at you. Go find that flexibility that you need to make sure that your dollars end up in the places where you want them. I would close by saying we're excited about next-generation schools because we think schools can be better. But you have to try some different things. Otherwise, you'll end up with the same old budget and the same old frustrations. So what's great about XQ is it's giving folks permission to dream and be a little radical. So go out and be radical.
0: Thanks for tuning into our discussion on design-driven school budgeting. We hope you found some inspiration from our experts. Visit xqsuperschool.org for more information on XQ the Superschool Project.